Splendid. Splendid. Hello and welcome to I Thought They Smelled Bad on the Outside, a show that had a catchphrase in mind, something, something, thing with a guy, and uh, two bucks, same as in town. <laughs> I'm Scott. <laughs> I am Dan. I realized I don't have a beer. Give me one minute. <laughs> beer check! <laughs> That is how tired I am. I forgot beer. Heresy. All right. So no business going on right now other than to say that, hey, if you've stuck around this long, share the link with some friends and maybe leave a rating somewhere. And there's a donate button on the sidebar. We're currently raising money so Justin can feel somewhat justified in buying a very expensive microphone. <laughs> I, I accidentally... Let him listen to what he would sound like if he recorded on an RE20. And he and he got really excited. And then I told them they were $700 and this was just a rental. And then he got very sad. Shit. <laughs> okay, they're 700 but everywhere you go online, they're like 450 Canadian. So I don't know what, that's, what that is in real money right now. But there you go. That that that's that's our business for the moment. And now on to pick of the week. What you got, Dan? Hmm. I'm conflicted between going with the pick for the new Godzilla trailer from Toho and a bone to pick regarding the newest Star Wars trailer. And I think I'm gonna go with the bone to pick because I really need to get this out there. Okay, I get it that shared universes are a thing now. We just got an announcement that they're doing a Scooby Doo Johnny Quest I the Josie and the Pussycats shared universe project going. You know, I get it. That's that's a new thing. But last week, the Rogue One trailer dropped. I could watch Johnny Yen hit Stormtroopers with a stick forever. Oh, God. I just need to literally just put... If, if there was a way to get my Facebook cover background to just be an animated GIF or GIF, as you, you like to call it, Sky. Jife. 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 Of Donnie Yen in that little two-second clip of him beating the crap out of Stormtroopers with his walking stick. But this whole trend of, okay, so Jin Arso is our new character for Rogue One. She's going to be the person who's going to lead the Rebel team to stealing the Death Star plans. What is driving me nuts is this insistence that she is Rey's mother. Oh, really? That Like, really? Yeah, there is this group think out there that even though they have stated these are standalone movies that are no way going to affect or interact with the original, with the saga movies, which are the episode titled movies. And then people are just immediately like, well, she's a female badass. Ray's kind of a female badass. They must be related. Well, no, it, it it's the Star Wars fan theory thing where everyone's related. Like, come on. Come on. Everyone, anyone who's kind of close must be related. And I'm just like, I realize that the guys on Clone Wars went out of their way 
to describe the only other dark side force using Zabrak as being metaphorically Darth Maul's brother in a roundabout way. But that's not every <sighs> single time always. I mean, I think I, there's only so many, there's only so many I am related to you reveals that this franchise can pull. And I think they, they know that. And they've even said, look, we're going to do numbered movies that are sequels to each other. And we're just going to have fun little side things that are fun little side things. And I just want to watch Forrest Whitaker be cool and Donnie Yen hit guys in the face, stormtroopers in the face with a stick. That's all I want. Yeah. Yeah. Can we not have By a fun logic. little movie where for, where Donnie Yen hits stormtroopers in the face with a stick? By the logic of these people, therefore, Finn is Lando's kid. Because he is a black dude who appeared in a Star Wars movie. And we have, by their logic, they must connect to somebody previously. Yeah, everything is touching all the time. There, you you are not allowed more than two degrees of separation. I'm really glad that the Shattered Empire comic established who Poe Dameron's parents were right off the bat, just so we don't have that oh, debate yeah. going on <laughs> as well. If you haven't read Shattered, yeah. If you haven't read Shattered Empire, it's fun. Poe Dameron's mom, she's cool. Yep, that's, but yeah, that's, that's my rant. I'm going to you, Scott. All right, so I have a pick of the week and a bone to the pick of the week, and they are two sides of a single coin, which is that, so, uh, Baldur's Gate got an enhanced edition, like, two years ago now, I want to, maybe three, god, I should probably play my copy. <laughs> I bought it twice, kind of, I, I, I got it for two bucks on tablet, and then GOG gave me a free version for PC because I already owned the regular edition on GOG because GOG is cool like that. But so so that came out and Beamdog, the rogue cell of Bioware, has released an expansion for Baldur's Gate, a 18-year-old game, specifically with the intent of resolving their personal dissatisfaction with not having a proper connective tissue between Baldur's Gate 1 and Baldur's Gate 2. And now everyone's pretty hunky-dory with this. Uh, the expansion's pretty buggy, kind of buggy, and that's, you know, always upsetting. Especially for a game that kind of runs pretty well now, but it's also like, we need to make this work. <laughs> we, we are using 18-year-old code on modern machines, and oh god, help us. So I can empathize. The emulator, the emulator can only go so far. Yeah, they're, they're like if you're going to develop new, entirely new things within the tool set of the time, plus whatever cludge they have, getting it to operate on current systems, it's you know it it something's gonna go sideways. It just happens. But there is one character completely missable, not quest related, no no story importance, and. It's a trans, it's a trans elf lady. And so about buried four layers deep into her dialogue tree, she, you, she'll actually explain that she's trans. And apparently this is the worst thing ever. This is the worst thing ever. And so the, the Fedoritarians of the internets have come out of their woodwork to rail against terrible writing and metabomb it. This is where my pick of the week comes in, because Ed Greenwood, creator of the realms, local librarian, shows up to say, oh, this is kind of dumb. 
Like, we've always kind of said, hey, D&D's your sandbox. Make what you, you know, add the things that matter to you to the setting. And, you know, over the decades of me working with TSR and Wizards and Hasbro, we've had a whole range of LGBTQIAAA things present in the setting to some degree. You know, not necessarily making a big deal of it or patting ourselves on the back for include being inclusive, but that's it. And he was like, yeah, and he, he kind of said that you're stop being dumb, guys. It's it's a fantasy game. If you can accept half dragons, you can accept trans people. And, you know, there's this third camp that are kind of like, OK, the game is really awkward because, you know, the fourth question you ask this person, she just comes out and explains her whole life and her whole transitioning. And I think in Ed's little rant, he misapprehends the trans experience a bit by conflating it with like weird things where figures in myth just swap gender for all sorts of mythically resonant reasons that are not necessarily related to personal identity, which is also weird. And I'm just like, okay, this is different and a a complex subject to work around. But at the same time, it's, I'd like to, like, I think I'm, I'm sitting down and just sort of looking at the player's handbook for fifth ed and being like, okay, so how how does a trans person do D&D, especially when you have literal magics that alter you all the time everywhere? <laughs> this is probably an attractive option to a lot of people. This this is why you adventure. It's because you don't fit. <laughs> and that's what I got. But yes. Well, pick, sir. Yeah, the, but, but just a reminder, if a thing is present, that doesn't mean it's being shoved down your throat. Although, if you think that, I might shove something down your throat. Possibly a sandwich. Big one. A lot of sauce. Pickles. I don't know. <laughs> like, whole big, big honkin' shrimp, poor boy. Right down your face. Choke on that, sucker. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so that, that's, that's my little, that, that's my little thing I had to get out. That, that idea I had to get out. And so now we move to our topic for the evening, The Watchmen, which is the classic 12-issue series from Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, and it is all well-liked and good. And so how did you come to read this? Because everyone's story is similar but different. <laughs> well, I picked it up after the movie. Okay. You know, I am I will admit, I am not that long of a comics fan. My comics fandom... Before 2006 was mostly the cartoons and the movies that had come out, like X-Men, Spider-Man, stuff like that. That's cool. No judging. Yeah. So I never had a real cop, really had a comic shop to go to because it wasn't my crowd. I was more of a video game guy. And I also kind of hated reading as a kid. Um, then eventually 2007 started picking up some comics, started reading some graphic novels. Um, and then what was it? Was 2009 when Watchmen came out? Yeah, 2009. Yeah, so they announced Watchmen, and I'd like I'd never heard of this series. Uh, I I remember seeing when I would go to the comic store, like a poster with Doctor Manhattan burning down Vietnam, but I had no idea who that character was or what he was from. So sat down, watched the movie with some friends, and we enjoyed it. You know, it was a bit of a the the movie version because prior to this I also rewatched I've rewatched both 
the nor- the theatrical cut and the director's cut. And the director's cut is a little more literal translation from page to movie. So, uh, you know, eventually I got my hands on a hard copy, read that, saw the differences, and I could kind of see where the original text had come from. And with the movie, the theatrical cut, uh, and even the director's cut, a lot of it is lost in the spectacle, I think. Um, but the the questions of, hey, we're street-level heroes, how the hell are we supposed to save the world? And you, you also kind of see a transitionary period of the 1940s when comic superhero comics were coming around and the transition from them being folksy heroes who would beat up weird masked villains every week to more um, gritty and hard edged and cerebral of characters. And that got reflected within the story of the universe. And I kind of appreciate that. I was, I overanalyzed when you just asked how, how I came no, into it. No, that, no, no, that's fine. This, this, the book kind of forces you to sit down and think. And I guess I'll say that, uh, this book came out in 87 when comic books were basically, this is the pivot point from the bronze age to the stupid age of comics in a lot of ways. But I read it in, um, about 2004. I had just kind of the, the, I was the one guy who kind of wrote in on the manga bubble and also picked up everything. Like, just like, it's like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, I'm reading. It's like, what, 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 what do you read? What do you read in the comic book shop in 2004? Like, Bleach and Dance and like Trigun, right? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so I've gone through my library's whole supply of manga. What else is in the illustrated section? Oh, hey, here's Watchmen. Everyone says that's a big deal. And I read it, and it's 2004. So superhero books at this point are pivoting off of the stupid age of, you know, grim and grim, gritty, grim, dark, blood, death, murder, rapes all the time, always. And into the current age of crossover events that just kind of happen and derail what writers are trying to do pretty frequently. Hey, I got this really good comic arc or this good arc for this character. Oh, wait, we're resetting the universe again. Uh, ah, damn it. Not, not even necessarily like, Oh, we're resetting the universe again. It's like, so I've got this great plan to relaunch guardians of the galaxy. Let's, <laughs> let's put the, that let, let's put this story on hold twice in the same quarter so i can tie into different events oh that that's rough but so so i'm reading it in that context i should say and so i i mean it is and when you're 17 you think of you you glom onto different aspects that you do when you reread it 10 years later but there's a lot of substance to this book, and there's a lot to be said for reading it and rereading it. I'm not going to say I like it, because there's things about it that, I don't know, just don't necessarily land with me. And there's things about it that I think, I I see where comics went after it, and I'm just, it makes me grumpy by proxy. It's sort of like, yeah, Rorschach is interesting, but I've read a dozen bad imitators of this 
and I didn't like them, so I don't like him. But it every time I read it, I have to. It it does pa- make give me pause and make me think. And I think what it comes down to is um, when Alan Moore says where he got get the, got the title, it's um, a phrase from a Latin poet, "Qui ipsos custodes." Il custodias. I've ruined that, and someone's going to throw a brick at my house. But and which gives you who watches the Watchmen, or who cares for the caretakers, depending on how you translate your Latin. And I think, and Moore says he takes the latter reading of it. It's these people are intensely broken, and they don't have anyone to look out for them the way other people. The, the way they do for other people, at least in theory. And coming at these characters from that lens is always fascinating to me, and I always find something new when I do revisit it. And I mean, it's just also really well drawn, and um, I'm, I'm just going to say right now I can't stand the Tales of the Black Freighter. The writers, it, the writer, both Gibbons and Moore admit they had no fucking clue what they were doing with it. <laughs> Uh, that thing, that whole thing read like some fucking grim 14-year-old's depressing emo fanfic. Um, yeah, like, it It sort of starts off as this exercise of, okay, if superheroes are real, what, what, what what's in the funny books? And the answer's probably, like, westerns and cow—it's probably, like, westerns and ghost stories and, you know— EC Comics shit that wouldn't have gotten cancelled because of the Comics Code, because the Comics Code wouldn't have happened the same way. But it's also just relentlessly, it's just sort of overwritten narration for the whole thing. It meanders in the middle, and then when they realized, oh, we can sort of tie that in so that it mirrors the end of the book a bit, we, we, we can claim that it was significant the whole time. Which they, which basically a lot of people say is what they did. And I'm like, no, you have my permission to skip Tales from the Black Freighter when it comes up. You have my permission to skip the boring bits. Which is so weird, because you have the other sort of metatextual one, which is Under the Hood, which is very clearly about that theme of what do Golden Age heroes do in a more complicated, more grounded scenario. And the answer is, well... You, you you walk away and then find out if your fallback is irrelevant too. <laughs> well, the the one thing I looked at with the the Tales of the Black Freighter part was it got you a chance to relate to some characters who weren't the Watchmen, like this newspaper guy who gives Rorschach his crazy right wing tabloid every Thursday or whatever it was. Yeah, and and you you hear this this newsstand guy just rambling on to this kid who's barely paying attention. And he, he's kind of just, not only is he describing how things changed, but I don't, you know, I was like three when the book came out. So it came out in like four individual issues, correct? Um, I want to know it was like 12. It was 12. Uh, he kind of also served as that, Hey dear reader, this is what's been happening in this series. Just yeah, to refresh he, you. He's a bit of a Greek chorus that way. Yeah, and I, I kind of appreciated that part. But you're right, it just you know, a couple like expand these twelve panel f- pages that are interlaced with all this dialogue from the Black Black Freighter, and maybe make it six and have like bigger pictures of the news articles 
and the progress of what's going on between the USSR and America and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, no. Black, Black Freighter was like four issues, yeah, of the 12 of the series. Because they really only had, they, again, Moore has admitted to only having enough plot for a six-issue mini. It maybe shows a bit. And I mean, there are there are more interesting ones, like when the the plot pauses for Dr. Manhattan's backstory told backwards. You know, that that's something. But the Black Freighter just feels like nothing every time. Yeah. This it's just the story of this one man's descent into madness. Yeah. And there's no real point to it. Yeah. So, you know, it it and I do recommend the book to people, but it's sort of something like I feel like if I were to introduce someone to comics, I'd start with something new and exciting and cool and fun, like maybe Hawkeye or whatever. But there's the point where it's like, okay, I want to know some history, and I'm like, okay, here's a you know what? Here is some manner of vintage Justice League. Here's a bit of a slice of the best of Ditko at Marvel, and then okay, this this is what, and then Watchmen happened, and then the '90s happened, and we don't talk about them. <laughs> And now you can go back to reading comic books that are fun and current or something. I don't know. Oh, you forgot the Dark Knight Returns in that. Oh, oh God. Can we all forget the Dark Knight Returns? Well, I I recommend the Dark Knight Returns. Dark Knight Returns 2, also known as the Dark Knight Raids, again, not Mm. so much. See, I don't know. Again, that, that... that's sort of another thing where I see a lot of stupid in Dark Knight that stupid that arose in later comics because of Dark Knight. And I just I can't like it as much like Dark Knight. Dark Knight right, Returns has two good issues and two weak issues that get weaker every year that goes by. <laughs> and that's and that's where I'm at with with that book. And again, this is fully just me. I mean, obviously, legendary reputation for a reason, and I'm just guy one guy with an internet connection, right? <laughs> what do I know? So then we get to the movie, and the movie was a long time coming. It was kind of a toxic property. No one thought you could adapt it. Terry Gilliam was doing weird, crazy things. And then it falls in Zack Snyder's lap. Somehow. I guess 300 made enough money and he's like, well, I'm going, I'd like to adapt all three comic books I've read someday. Here's the second one. <laughs> I'm sorry, four comic books. Four. He's read four. <laughs> um, but so, so it comes to Zack Snyder. And if you've already got a liberal arts degree, forgive me, but a work has three components in a, a certain sense. There is the text, the the actual printed page. There is subtext, which is the themes that are not spoken, that connect all the pages together. And there's the context, the time and place it came out, and what it reflects about those. And this book came out in 1986 and 1987, which was a very different time. And Zack Snyder did was slavishly devoted to the text you can see it like you i'm sure there's someone out there who's done like a frame to page comparison and there are some bits where actually using that as the basis for composition and composition is something snyder does well 
is an asset oh. for the movie, but he has completely missed the subtext, or when someone told him what the subtext was, he put that in the script so people were explaining themselves, and he has removed the context. He, he can't replicate the context of the original release, and he doesn't have the chops to adapt it to the current context for comics and comic book movies of 2009, because, you know, that would require some thought. So what we have is someone putting exactly what's on the page on the screen, but consistently missing the point of what's on the page. So there yeah. are... Yeah. Snyder is a very good visual director. As I was watching the director's cut, he literally just... I don't even think he had a storyboard. I think he literally just set the giant 420-some page book in front of their script writers and goes, this is how we're visualizing the scenes. We, 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 we do this. We do this as hard as we can. Yeah. Except for but the space at, monster at the end. I can kind of understand them reworking that because that doesn't really work in... See, to me, the space monster is just so perfectly Silver Age dumb. Like that, that's, that's, that, that's the thing is there's an element of deconstruction to the Watchmen so that they are looking, Moore is taking all of the Silver Age and asking questions and poking the uncomfortable corners of that era of comics. And he caps it off with a weird ass space monster. Cause of course the evil plan is one step more elaborate than it has to be. It it wouldn't it wouldn't be right if it wasn't. Mm. The thing for me though is, a, as much as you want to appeal to comics fans, you also need to make it easily digestible for the general audience. Oh yeah, and there, there's a lot of there, there's a lot of building in really offhand remarks to set up this weird space monster, which is not a space monster at all. At the end, it it. They put the pieces down, but they never glue them together in a way that a Hollywood script would have to. So by having it just be, you know, a, a gun on the mantle that, you know, Ozymandias is working on an energy source based on, you know, uh, Dr. Manhattan's experiments, and then having it go off in the middle of Moscow and New York is you know, good enough for a three-act screenplay. It introduces yeah. this... It, 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 it gets undermined a little bit. It, it leaves a, you asking more questions of the resolution. Like, the, the, the piece at the end of the book feels... A, the movie feels a lot more tenuous compared to the book where it's just like, dude, weird-ass space monster! Yeah, because the whole... <laughs> The whole yeah, that that's the one thing that did bug me about the movie's change was the 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 change to making Doctor Manhattan the villain when he never really had any public animosity towards people. Well, that's it. They also cut the element where he's under the public eye. He he's under a lot of negative press because he causes cancer because he's a man made out of radiation, <laughs> and so all of his old friends have cancer now and they're blaming him and he's kind of like this 
tabloid villain figure that if they'd kept that in the movie somehow, you could have spun that as being part of presenting him as a vengeful god, which is what you kind, which I guess was, you know, Veidt's plan. Right. And I guess getting back, (laughs) and yeah, getting back to context, the only thing you could think to mod, to reference for the only thing you could think to reference for modern comic books is to change Ozymandias' costume into a Schumacher nipple suit. <laughs> I mean, the, the 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 fact that he's gay is very downplayed in the book. And now again, your your subtext has become text. And you're not better for that, Zach. <laughs> yeah. This movie is kind of a, especially the director's cut version, because I, I rewatched that in preparation for this. He, he has a hard on for slow motion. Like, well, he, his signature, like Michael Bay's signature is explosions. No, Zack well, Snyder's Mike, every, is, everyone explodes things. Michael Bay's good at it, but I think Michael Bay's signature is the 360 spin is it yeah is the spin and he's good at it and he does it all the time and you're never sure why <laughs> it's like yeah the- but there's these sections throughout the movie where it's this whole quickly speed up and then slow down and then quickly speed up and slow down well okay snyder it- is a much like michael bay a guy who came out of music videos so playing with speed is a big deal there and the fact that he came out of music, music videos is readily apparent when the best fucking thing about the movie is the opening sequence, Bob Dylan's Times They Are a Change In. That oh, yeah. montage is glorious, because my whole thing coming into this is I'm, I'm skeptical of what Hollywood would do to something that's a little more complicated. And establishing an alternate timeline, especially when the alternate timeline is not critical or not front and center of the piece the way it is in Watchmen where it's like yeah this is this is a different 1985 but it's also not a big deal in terms of what's going on with the characters so i'm like how how are you going to do this is it just going to be like 20 minutes of info dumping and exposition and he sums it all up in one song perfectly and i can watch that one song on a loop Intercut with Donnie and beating the hell out of stormtroopers with a stick. <laughs> <laughs> Callback, honky. <laughs> uh, the, th- the thing for me is, like I said, he's a bit of a flash over substance. I give serious props to whoever edited the theatrical version of the film. Because the pacing, because literally the director's cut, the three hour director's cut is a literal translation of page to book. Well, and for cin- for cinematic flair, that does not work. Yeah. The, the 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 first half of that book is very slow and thoughtful. Yeah, it's interspaced with a couple of fight scenes here and there, but those are over real quick. Well, and it it's a very decompressed narrative and it's you know, the first half is driven by a couple of different mysteries that don't seem to make sense and a couple of character conflicts that don't have a clear arc, at least at first. And it all, and it clicks together at the end. But it's, it's not something that 
you know, again, it's not a three act structure thing. It's, it's not obviously, it's not obviously formula the way, say, your average six part comic book is, right? Like, if you've, if, if you've ever grabbed a, you know, if you've ever grabbed a decent trade, and I mean, Bendis, I'll give him hell, but he, he can plot a six issue arc pretty much in his sleep most days. <laughs> Oh, the, the, the Runaways, Volume 1. Yeah, the first exactly. 18 issues. It doesn't work as a movie. Damn, that would work great as the outline for a TV show. Oh, like that that's one perfect season of TV, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly one. Maybe that's a Netflix thing. That's a Netflixable thing. But... Finger, you know, I keep, every time they announce they got new projects on the way, I still have my fingers crossed that Runaways is going to be one of them. Give it enough time, it'll happen. But for now, we've got Cloak and Dagger, which is... me. It could work. They could do something with it. It could work, but it's on, like, weird C-grade cable. Like, it's on... Okay, I'm never going to call it Freeform. It's still ABC Family. (laughs) Oh, God. Then they're not going to be able to do that story justice. They they will not be able to grab any Cloak and Dagger story. Now, it's still... They've drastically shifted what ABC Family is... But I'm just gonna keep calling it that, cause come on. <laughs> that, that's where all the wholesome sitcoms were. <laughs> but yeah, for. But you know, Snyder that... always goes on these rants that, oh, I understand the mythos and the mythology, and it's like. You've read four no. comic books, bud. I yeah. can tell. I can tell. Oh, the, the one thing that drives me nuts. Is at least with the way that this the DC cinematic universe or extended universe, expanded universe, whatever the hell you want to call their definition of it, is his insistence on trying to break down Superman when he doesn't need to be brought down or, or broken up. Yeah. Like you can still tell the story of a man and have him have a moral center. Well, like. And this is the part that I cannot rock. He spent years of his life telling Dr. Manhattan's story. God walking among men and figuring it out. And coming to a decision. And coming to, and coming to realize that he still has humanity left in him. He's gone over that arc. He would have had to have read this dozens, hundreds of times. And he never transferred that skill to anything else. <laughs> he, yeah, the, he the, does the shot like, of like this the, is it. He, is I he didn't get what he was doing. Like he's got excellent technique, but no understanding. Yeah, the the way the comic has it, and somewhat it, it's somewhat there in the movie is this way of trying to explain to us what a fourth dimensional being. How a fourth dimensional being tells his story. You know, a guy who, from his point of view, exists at all moments, at all time. Like, how the hell do you tell that to somebody like us? And they managed to get that to work. But he can't grasp that Ma and Pa Kent are Clark Kent's moral center and moral compass on how he views the world and has the goodness to help people. I mean, seriously, in Batman v Superman, Superman only acts like Superman for a three-minute montage. 
And he doesn't walk around like a shining beacon of hope. He just sits there and floats and looks cool for the camera and has this dour, sour look on his face through the whole thing. I mean, I'll get into it more if we ever want to do one of these about Batman v Superman. We'll get there, but here's the thing. But I don't want to give it like theater money. I don't want to be in a position where I can't have a lot of bourbon handy. And I'd like to give him the benefit of the doubt of the director's cut, if only to cut off the comments from the three guy, the three loudest guys who like this movie. So that that's where I'm at, is once this is out, I can watch it at my own pace with my dear friend Jim Beam. <laughs> then we can talk about Batman v Superman. But as for The Watchmen, um, yeah, the movie... I walked out of the theater pretty happy, watched it again at home, less happy. The more I think about this movie, I'm less happy. Because the thing I always take away from the book is that I have something to think about. And the thing I take away from the movie is just a lot of cool slow motion stuff and an excellent soundtrack. Right? Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that operatic piece during Dr. Manhattan's story. Oh, all of it, actually. All of it. Whole thing. Oh, no, no, no. The, the music numbers are great, but the one I like particularly is that weird kind of mix of choir and a carnival piano. And it just... Was that, that... I don't remember. Was that an original piece, or is that something that existed somewhere else first? Oh, God. Okay, it, it's a Philip Glass, so he was a crazy 20th century American composer doing crazy American composer things. <laughs> it it's, it's a different flavor than the crazy German composer things of the same time. If you studied classical music, this is about as good as I can explain it without actually teaching you a lot about music. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, but I, I do also have to give him points. Little tiny points uh, for actually using Cohen's version of Hallelujah. <laughs> no one uses Cohen's version. Not even Cohen uses Cohen's version. <laughs> oh, Lenny. Second most covered song of all time. <laughs> but yeah, no, the, the music in this movie is wonderful. The... I like the visual styling of it because other than, like you said, some stylistic stuff we're making Osmodeus as a suit, rather than it just being a gold fabric Greco-Roman style thing, making it look like Alexander the Great, the rest of it is pretty good. Uh, I like the changes to the Night Owl suit. Yeah, I'm actually it down seems for like, those. Yeah, this, it makes them seem like... Uh, this is our universe's Batman. Even the the original Crime Busters Night Owl with the very, very close uh, resemblance to Batman 66. Well, that, that and... Okay, so I guess the, I do have to establish this bit of trivia. It was originally... More pitched it as a story featuring the Charlton Comics characters DC had just acquired. So that was supposed to be Ted Kord's Blue Beetle. Hmm. Oh, no, no, Dan Garrett's Blue Beetle. Sorry, losing track of my Beatles here. <laughs> Which one is it again? The blue one. Yeah. You've had six of those. Yeah. Well, there, there's also two black ones now. <laughs> I know, but 
You know what I mean? And so the so and you can see that still, like, you know, Rorschach is the question taken to well, I'm sure the full extent of crazy that Ditko might have wanted if <laughs> you know, he'd been working in a different time. Yeah, Rorschach Rorschach is the question with the dial switched hard to the right. Oh, very hard. <laughs> I, I love the, uh, the the whole thing with the, the little intercuts with the uh, the bulletin guys oh, those in guys. the comic. <laughs> Where it's like, you guys are going to be the founders of Fox News. Oh, God. Probably. Probably. They make it that long, they'll do it. <laughs> uh. But yeah, I mean, I recommend both the movie. Well, I recommend the book before the movie now because of all the stuff that we pointed to about it being just a bit of a it just doesn't hold up you're 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 rolling with it in the moment and then you kind of leave and you're hungry like 20 minutes later right pretty much i mean the one of the other things about it was this the advertising when this film was coming out ooh, ooh. that was somebody somebody, somebody obviously did not see the book see the movie or read the book yeah i mean there's there's always the story of the parent who takes their kids to the R-rated movie because they don't pay attention. But there's that moment where you have to, like, kind of pull the mom aside and say, 70-foot-tall blue dong. Ma'am, this is not Spider-Man. This is, this is not the Spider-Man movie we're expecting. Ah. And then, um, did you read any of Before Watchmen? Um, when the single issues were coming out, I, I browsed the stuff with, um, with, uh, Lori's teenage years or, you know, joining a commune. The hippie commune. And, yeah, and then rejecting all of that. And then there was the Osmodius issues, but... Those were a little more cerebral than just that you would actually have to sit down that, that's and read something... versus yeah versus just browsing on the shelf. Yeah. So uh, I I read I I read the big bind up of um, the Minutemen and Silk Spectre because they they paired up all the collections for them, and the one with Laurie's fine. And the one with the Minutemen is fine, and I suspect they're all fine. But I have to sit here and go, DC, you put together nine fantastic teams, best some of the best in comics right now, and you could have said, pitch me the next Watchmen, pitch me your Watchmen, pitch us a new IP for a limited series that'll run entirely on its own. Give us your best, we'll make it even better if we can and they didn't they said hey everyone's still talking about watchmen let's let's turn this for another quick buck let's just let's fill in the blanks that don't need to be filled in let's let's take let's rip every shred of ambiguity out of that book let's explain it to death and that's where they went and i'm like you know what? I I can't I I can't understand what DC does most of the time. So I'm just sort of left with, well, this is a shelf full of things I could read and they're probably okay. 
or I could find something new because I don't want more Watchmen. Watchmen was Watchmen was twelve issues that could have been better at nine, <laughs> right? Yeah, cut down on the conspiracy a little. Uh, flesh. Up. I think the Rorschach's investigation could have used a bit of trimming on it, even as short as it was. But there, there's definitely a lot of points that need cut down. But I, oh, I know exactly one section that could have totally not even been in the book, which worked perfectly in the movie, was the psychiatrist. Yeah. I really did not need to see his home life where he almost makes his marriage fall apart because of him trying to help Rorschach. Yeah, and, and, and that's it, right? Like, this this is a 12-issue story that could have been told in nine, and now you're stacking 50 books on top of it for no reason other than money. And I mean, like, I'm never going to begrudge you trying to make money. But make money smart. Make money the hard way. Don't just keep using a name that you have no business really adding anything to. And for fuck's sake, let more renegotiate the rights on this book. Come on. You've been hosing him for decades, and you've poisoned a well forever. Cut him some slack. Do you know the deal? No, I'm just not aware. Of that. I, I know both DC and Marvel are historically known for their underhandedness. Okay, so this one is this one almost feels like an accident um, that maybe they could correct at any given moment. But um, at a certain, there was a deal uh, when more printed when more and Gibbons and put together went went to DC. They said, "Okay, you can have full full residuals from this story, full and full rights." If it's ever out of print for an entire year. Guess how long Watchmen has been out of print. How many days it's been out of print since 1987. Maybe two and both are a Sunday. <laughs> yeah, something like that. And I mean, at the time, it was sort of like, yeah, like this will sell like four or five print runs and then we'll have it. We'll, we'll, we'll do something. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll be great. And then it was a mega hit, and then they did the hardcover, and the paperback, and the super deluxe hardcover, and the annotated paperback, and it just keeps going around and around, and it's never gone out of print, and I'm just like, cut the guy some slack. You both know that you dealt in one thing, and now you're just... You dealt with him in good faith. And the second you saw that the good faith didn't code the way you expected it to, and you're benefiting from it, you don't do something to restore that faith. Fuck you. Fuck that. Well, we are talking. We are talking about the company that it took them almost seventy six years to acknowledge Bill Finger's contributions to Batman. Oh, I know. I know. It's 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 all these little things that. Everyone knows, and, and no one will... And the the dumb part is that they tried to do better for a long time. There was a deal in place where if you created a character, you got a little piece if he ever showed up anywhere else. So the man who created Lucius, Lucius Fox, I think, is, I think it's Len Wein, actually, created Luci, Lucius Fox, who he created purely as a guy in a business suit that worked with Bruce Wayne and had a name, gets gets a check every time Morgan Freeman shows up in a movie to play Lucius Fox. 
Or he gets mentioned in the Arkham games. Yeah, exactly. And just a little hat tip, little, little, little bonus. And you know what? Everyone's happy about it. Now, if, if a movie, if a movie writer had created Lucius Fox, he would not get that same deal if he were to port into the comics. And Paul Dini's been a great fucking sport about Harley Quinn. <laughs> but again, just play nice, guys. You don't have to... It doesn't cost much. And it only makes you look good, right? And you don't. You are talking about the company that also decided rather than pay the, the Simon & Schuster deal, they decided to change the look of their character instead. So... Yeah, I realize Greed that- is a powerful thing. I know, I know. I don't... Well, this is exactly why I'm just one guy with an internet connection and not a guy with a nice suit and a Masters of Business Administration because I kind of feel like playing fair with people most days. <laughs> but here we are. That's what we think of Watchmen. It's it's a thing to read, and maybe you should read it. Yeah, read it at some point in your comic reading career hobby whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And at least look at it once. I mean, you don't have to own the collection. I I have the book in digital format just because it was easier to walk around and read when I'm having a slow day at work or, or just sitting down waiting at a doctor's office. It, it It's a big, heavy thing. There's something to be said for digital comics, if only by virtue of the space they save. So, yeah, I mean... Pick it up, read it once, and form your own opinions. You don't even have to buy it. You can borrow it from a friend who has it. Libraries, it's a mainstay of libraries everywhere. And that, that that's where we're at. We'll catch you next time. Yep. Rush, I thought they smelled bad. On the outside. I Thought They Smelled Bad on the Outside is released under Creative Commons Attribution Share of Life Non-Commercial 3.0 International License. Please visit sbopodcast.com for contact information, social media links, and past episodes.